Part Nine of Just Me by Pearl White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Now somehow I always feel more courageous when I'm all dressed up in new clothes, so the first move I made was to get myself a new outfit. I went to the best shop in town where the sales lady, among other things, told me that I looked best in white or black. So I decided to take her tip, and black and white it was straight through. I had to wait several days for the first gown, so I spent these becoming a model tourist and seeing the sights. My first scenery was to be delivered at three that afternoon, and I decided I would just stay in bed until then. But at ten the phone rang, my first call. I had sent out my letter of introduction to the Count the night before, and it was he. He asked me to tea that afternoon, saying that he would love to hear news of Bep. Talk of Bep! What could be sweeter? Well, my small room and bath were not big enough to hold me after that conversation, so I decided to get out and get some air. I donned one of my American sport suits and set out for a hike to calm down my surging emotions. I was just crossing Pall Mall, bound for Hyde Park, when I was nearly knocked down by a gray racing car containing two young men. I dodged it by an inch and landed in front of a tram. Then I took a step backward and would have encountered another car, only I took a flying leap and caught onto the back of the gray racer, a la serial, and landed on the tire rack. Oh, Miss White! exclaimed one of the men in the racer. Then I looked down into the smiling face of Lord Haskin Smith. They started to drive me to the park. However, before we got there, we all decided that we should celebrate the event by having lunch together. They were going to Sunningdale afterward to play golf, and suggested that I join in a game of golf. I said I would love to. Besides, I was all dressed for the part. Of course, I didn't know how to play, but I didn't tell them that. The chance to spend the afternoon with this man, whom I took to be an English lord, was not to be sneezed at, so I decided that I wouldn't show up for my appointment with the Count, but would stick with him. Golf! I had never even held a club in my hand, but I knew not the danger of my deception. Well, the lord loaned me a set of clubs, which I immediately said were much too long for me. I didn't know the difference, but I had to start finding fault in case I went all wrong at the game. "'What grip do you use?' he asked as he teed up my ball. "'Grip? Grip? Oh, yes, I have one of my own.' I lied. And as he stepped aside to let me drive, I continued, "'Oh, do shoot first, Lord Haskinsmith. I get so nervous when anybody watches me.' "'Nervous? I wanted to see how the trick was done.' Now all of you regular golf players know the treachery of this game. So many people play better their first attempt than they do for years afterwards. Perhaps it is because they don't know the horrors of the game, and get all nervous, and think themselves out of a lot of shots. So with all the confidence in the world, I walked bravely up and gave that ball such a clean smack that it went sailing through the air, farther than I have ever driven since, and I have been playing now for nearly three years straight. "'My, what a wonderful drive!' exclaimed the Lord. "'If you continue like that, I can't give you a stroke a hole.' I didn't know what that meant either, but the thing that worried me was when to use the different clubs in the bag. There were eight in all. 
Therefore, I sneaked my caddy a couple of shillings and told him to hand me the right club at the right time. Thus I played on famously for six holes. On the seventh I drove a rotten ball. Do you live in London, Lord Haskinsmith? I inquired as we walked toward the fairway. No, he replied, I live in Washington. Washington, is that a nice place? I went on. Well, it's nice enough to be the capital of the United States, aren't you kidding me? He laughed. Oh, then you are an American, I continued, taking a brassy straight into a bunker. The truth dawned upon me. Mr. Lord. Lord was his given name. Haskin was his middle name. He was just Mr. Smith, after all, and I had thought I was out with a nobleman. I could have kicked myself all over that golf course, but instead I got all fussed up, took about ten to get out of the bunker, realized what a serious game golf is, and was all for getting back to London to meet the Count, whom I hoped would turn out to be a real one. So I told Smith I was getting very tired, and he drove me back to London. I never told him of my stupidity concerning my thoughts of him, but I wish I had, because he was really an awfully nice fellow, with a sense of humor. I hustled into my new gown, which was waiting for me at the hotel. It was a white chiffon affair with a large, fluffy hat to match, and the crowning glory of the outfit was a huge white fox fur. That summer was about the first one that women began to wear furs in the hot weather. My fur was expensive and hot, but I had to be in style, so I suffered along with the others, draped it around my neck, and, much pleased with my whole appearance, dashed down to meet the Count who was waiting for me in the lobby. The Count, he was a real one, too, all done up in a high hat, cutaway coat, white spats, and sported a monocle. He was silly both in looks and actions. He kissed my hand with all the ecstasy of his Latin nature, and made me feel from the first moment that I had made an awful hit with him. And when we walked into the tea-room, and the head-waiter rushed up all smiles, and inquired just which table Monsieur Le Count preferred, I felt pretty stuck-up and aristocratic. Well, I couldn't pronounce the Count's name. We decided that I would call him Bobby. His Christian name was Roberta, so Bobby it was from then on. We rambled on that afternoon, talking of Bep, as though he was my bosom friend, and I was ashamed to admit that I didn't even know Bep's real name. Besides, I was getting a little more snobbish, and decided it must be nothing less than a Count from then on and I was sure that Bep didn't have a title, or he would have signed himself as such. Well, Bobby was all over the place from then on, sending me flowers and dancing attendance upon me. He also sent me a beautiful Russian wolfhound, who was as dumb as any dog was ever allowed to be. Nevertheless, I thought this large white animal made rather a striking picture against my white frocks, so I led him about London, feeling that I looked rather elegant. I also learned that to be really swell I should have a chaperone and a maid. Therefore I elected an invalid aunt, who, however, was always too ill to go out with me, and a very polite maid. In other words, I answered the phone in three different voices, which served my purpose without any expense. I would probably have had more servants, only I couldn't change my voice any more times. I didn't say much, but showed visible signs that I was a young American heiress, and as such I was looked upon. I was just a fine young fakir trying to sneak into society. 
Now I had promised the Colonel, whom I spoke of before, that as soon as I got located I would phone him my whereabouts. I had delayed doing this until I got my new clothes. The dog came into my life the morning after my tea with Bobby, and that furnished a wonderful excuse to call up the Colonel. Oh, I have such a wonderful new dog, I gushed over the phone, and of course he answered as I expected. Oh, I would love to see it. So I, knowing very little of social etiquette, I asked if the dog and I might visit him. Oh, that would be jolly, he answered. Do come, I will send my car for you this minute. So to the Colonel's house went the dog and myself. Now I can't vouch for the dog, but for myself I can say that that was the first luxuriant, well-appointed home that I had ever stepped into. And I scented bad news ahead the moment I entered the drawing-room, and was presented to four other strange, serious-looking men besides the Colonel. It seems that a meeting of high finance was going on, and that lunch was to be served shortly. The dog was given the once-over, and then led out in state by a butler, while I was given the information that I must stay to lunch. I don't know whether they suspected that I might be good for a laugh, or whether one customer had disappointed. Anyway, I stayed, and noted that the table was set for six. I was placed at the head of the table, with an extra butler standing behind my chair, which got me nervous right away. That table, gee, Rusalum, it looked like a Christmas tree. There were at least a dozen different knives and forks laid beside my plate. So my only hope to draw the right one at the right time was to follow someone else, but this was not to be. I, being the only lady, was served first. That was my downfall. The parade started. One butler entered with a huge silver platter, slipped it to the other one, who in turn placed it before me. Now I didn't know just what this concoction was, but I strongly suspected it of being fish. However, just which was the fish and which were the trimmings I knew not. Consequently, there was nothing to do but to say, No, thank you, and leave it to the next guest to dissect. Oh, said the Colonel, you should try some of this lovely salmon. And by the same token, salmon is my favorite dish. But I listened not to the pleading of my stomach, and stuck to my no thank you. The next course was soup. Nice red tomato soup, all dished out, so I took a chance that I would get the right spoon and get away with that. But here was another catch. I didn't have a napkin. There was one in front of my plate, all draped around a piece of bread, which gave it the appearance of a full-blown rose. I looked around the table and discovered that those in front of the other plates had disappeared. Therefore, I figured they were put there to be used, but whether to boldly unravel a said napkin or sneak it, I wasn't quite sure. However, the others had taken theirs while I wasn't looking, so I decided to get mine the same way and to get it at once, because I felt that I needed some protection for my new white gown against that red soup. Therefore I started to tell a story, gesticulating wildly with my right hand, and sneaking the napkin with my left. The story was going well, and I had succeeded in unwinding said napkin unobserved, but as I drew it toward me with a wide sweep, I upset my neighbor's soup plate, spattering the contents all over his white waistcoat. 
Well, the game was all over. So I arose, chucked my cards on the table, and confessed that I was cheating. Gentlemen, I said, I am sorry, so very sorry that I stayed here to wreck your luncheon. To be truthful, I am all wrong. I am absolutely bewildered by the whole surroundings. I don't know just what all this collection of knives and forks means. Your gang of servants make me nervous. I don't know when to eat, what to eat, or how to eat it. In other words, I'm sunk, and there is no use trying to bluff it out. So saying, I placed my right hand on the table, to sort of steady myself, and flop it went into my soup. How I wished I could faint, or die, or do something to pass out of the picture at that moment. But I couldn't. I was too doggone healthy. I think maybe I would have burst into tears, but everybody began to laugh, so I joined in. "'By Jove!' said the gentleman whose waistcoat I had ruined. "'What a confession for a woman to make! I simply love your frankness!' And there, through being honest, and admitting my ignorance, I gained some applause from one of the greatest men in history. Lord Kitchener, yes, a real lord this time, and the most brilliant and wonderful human being that I have ever met. The laugh was on me, but they wouldn't let me go home, so I remained through the rest of the luncheon. The colonel was served first. I followed his lead and got through all right. I decided I would become absolutely honest, and told them stories of my poverty-stricken past. They were amused, I hope you will also be, so the party turned out a success after all. I have the memory of spending an afternoon with five of the biggest men of our time, while they have probably used me as the heroine of a lot of funny stories, for I met them a good many times afterward, and the colonel did a whole lot toward giving me a social education. He secured a chaperone for me, who steered me through a lot of very wonderful social functions, where I learned a lot, and we all had plenty of laughs at the comic things I did. As far as the Count and his crowd were concerned, I still went on as a gay deceiver and got away with it. He waltzed me all about London, proposing marriage every day or so, thinking I was a young American heiress. The glamour of becoming a countess was very alluring, and I think I would have married him at once if it hadn't been for Bep. He, who I didn't even know, and although I did not admit it to myself, I was madly in love with. Silly, but then. Well, two months of this wonderful life went by. My money was dwindling away, and I wanted to see Paris and Rome. So, as usual, I acted on impulse, packed my bag, told no one of my intended departure, caught the two o'clock train from Charing Cross, via Folkestone, Bologna, to Paris. Under ordinary circumstances, I should have reached Paris early that night, where I had rooms engaged at the Ritz. Yes, I had rooms now. Like most people, I got sick enough crossing the Channel, and, as I walked through the customs officers at Bologna, feeling none too jolly, one dark-looking Frenchman with a big moustache, opened up my bag, then gave a violent shriek. I was about the last one to leave the boat. Consequently, any help I might have obtained in this situation had already boarded the Paris Express. Said officer burst into reams of French, but I didn't know what was the matter, and felt in no mood to be bothered, so I reached for my bag. And I don't know whether I did it on purpose or not. Anyway, my elbow landed square in his eye. More shrieks! and he pulled my trusty revolver out of my handbag. 
I thought maybe I had to deal with a madman, so I made a dash for the train, but he was quickly joined by two gendarmes, who withheld me by force. Now it seems that to cross the border line into France with firearms in one's possession is a horrible offense. And to make it worse, I had a dagger and a couple of decks of playing cards, two other violations of the French law. I didn't know this, and I didn't understand his volley of French. So up to the tribunal of justice they forcibly dragged me, and by the time they'd got me before the chief with a translator, my train had departed for Paris. End of Part 9